0: Welcome to the Catholic Perspective, a podcast brought to you by RCSpirituality.org. Enjoy the episode.
1: All right, I'm Father John Fender here with Father John Pietropoli. During this uh, Easter season. We thought it might be interesting to get together and talk about a an amazing novel, *Crime and Punishment* by Dostoevsky, and especially with the perspective of the Resurrection. And so, Father John Pichapoli actually leads uh, a seminar on *Crime and Punishment* here at the uh, seminary, and we thought uh, he would he can give an excellent reflection on that, and and to kind of pull some possible. Pointers out for that for for all of us about resurrection and 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 things that that we can apply in our own lives. So, Father John, uh, just for anybody that you know hasn't read Crime and Punishment, what could you give us a maybe a summary of 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 the novel itself? Sure, I'd be happy to. It's such a rich novel, as you were saying, and yeah.
0: we could spend hours talking about it. There's so many different ways of looking at it, and since we'll focus on the resurrection here, I'm not going to go really in depth in the ins and outs of the novel, but just as you said, a kind of a basic storyline. So the story focuses on Raskolnikov, who's a young student in St. Petersburg in Russia in the 1860s. And he's very intelligent and he's also somewhat embittered. He's really fallen into the uh, atheist ideologies of the mid 19th century. And one of his main obsessions is the idea of doing some great action. He wants to do something great. And this is so interesting. We won't get into this really, but it's a fascinating, fascinating angle that he's actually in a sense foreshadowing here what Friedrich Nietzsche is going to talk about 15 or so years later with his idea of the Superman, of this person who goes beyond the boundaries of good and evil, who does some great action without regards to morality, especially Christian morality and then lives up to that action. So he creates his own meaning through his actions. So Raskolnikov becomes obsessed with this idea and he decides that in order to do some great action, he needs to murder someone. Now at the same time, he's poor. So he's going to murder someone, steal her money, then use that money to put himself through the rest of law school and then do great things for society. At least that's his rationale. So he ends up murdering two people, one deliberately, one accidentally. And that's how the whole story starts because he actually doesn't get caught. And there are very few people who even suspect that he might be the murderer, but his conscience will not give him rest. And so really most of the novel is Raskolnikov inside his own head and the readers inside the mind of Raskolnikov with him as he's wrestling back and forth between you could say his humanity, his conscience, his sense of right and wrong. And at the same time, this obsession with going beyond good and evil. And eventually what happens is through the help of actually a young prostitute in St. Petersburg named Sonia, who's a character we'll talk about a lot today, ultimately he comes to realize I need to turn myself in. And eventually towards the end of the novel, He does turn himself into the police and he goes to Siberia as a convict. So that's kind of the, the main arc of the story. I think though, it's interesting to ask what's maybe we could say the meta narrative, you know, that's kind of the narrative of the story. What's the, the meta narrative that's here. And really it seems to be this journey from death to life because at the end of the novel, Dostoevsky uses a lot of words like regeneration, uh, rejuvenation, a new life. So the kind of the underlying story within the story itself seems to be that it's his journey from from death for Raskolnikov to life in a resurrection.
1: Yeah, that uh, that's that's exactly kind of what we experience, right, with the resurrection and things. And I'm sure that's what you'll touch on as well. Um, could you could you explain just a little bit, maybe as well? uh just Dostoevsky and and the time that he's writing and kind of the the era cuz that might also shed some light a little bit just on what he's trying to to show because this is you know Jordan Peterson calls this probably one of the best psychological novels of all time i mean Jordan Peterson uh he says that Dostoevsky is one of his favorite authors precisely because he can capture the, the the psychological depths and dynamics that happen in all of us you know and 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 portray them in writing that just brings it to life where people you identify with the situations, the characters, the drama that is going on in, in, in the characters themselves. And so, um, you know, what, what is Dostoevsky kind of his, the time frame, the context of his, of, of his life when he's writing this, uh, and, and maybe which could just shown a little bit through the novel itself as well. Sure. It's an excellent question.
0: Yeah. So if we zoom out a little bit, What time frame are we talking about here? Dostoevsky's writing really from the 1850s until the 1880s. It's actually an excellent book by the French Jesuit Henri de Lubac called The Drama of Atheist Humanism, which I recommend very, very highly. He wrote it in, I think, 1942. And in the book, he asked this question. He says, how is it that the world is tearing itself apart? 1942, right? He's in France. So (laughs) World War II nazism communism he said what has happened and he said actually to answer the question we need to go back to the 19th century to the communist and other atheist ideologies that are springing out of the context out of the the world views of the 19th century and he said there's a difference between the atheism of the 19th century and really all previous atheism because atheism crops up in different ways throughout history right a denial of god or just kind of a, you know, sort of like a, a teenage attitude, a sophomore attitude. Yeah, like not like living God. that God. Right, exactly. Type, type thing, right. But what's happening, he said, in the 19th century is that you actually have these philosophical systems, which become incredibly influential, which are setting up man, the human person, man and woman, as a rival to God. So it's not just saying hey, you know, we can't really know if God exists or not. Sort of like the the French dilettantes, you know, of the 18th century, the Enlightenment, where, okay, maybe they're atheists, but it's also kind of a game for them. For these thinkers in the 19th century, it's very, very serious. And it culminates ultimately with Friedrich Nietzsche's declaration that God is dead. So what de Lubac points out is when Nietzsche says God is dead, what he's saying is that we actually need to set up man the human person in the place of god god doesn't exist god has never existed the human person is god and therefore all standards of good and evil that are taught by go beyond those you also have karl marx for example with marxism which has been so incredibly influential once again saying that Uh, Religion is the opium of the masses, that God is just a a tool of the oppressive superstructure to keep the proletariat in their state of subservience, and therefore we have to move beyond that. But de point is that in every situation, it's setting up the human person in the place of God. So what happens if God's dead? Fragmentation, alienation, meaninglessness. And I think Dostoevsky felt that so deeply. He was Christian himself. He was Orthodox. He had kind of a journey of faith himself, as yeah. everyone does. Um, but I think he felt so deeply the the death of God, so to speak, in Western civilization and the results that come from that to the human soul. And so that's what he's really exploring in his novels.
1: Right. Well, that, oh, that's awesome. Thanks for explaining that. I think, you know, just then taking that, I, I think, he, you know, we can can you say that Raskolnikov has embraced that God is dead uh mentality. And and then, you know, you know, like you you talked about in the novel, Russ kind of uses Napoleon as the as an example of being the great man that can go beyond um kind of the moral structures that exist to do something great for society. And that's what, like you said, that's what he intends to do by by murdering the pawnbroker. In his neighborhood, who was just a horrible person, he would be doing something great for the neighborhood. But that's that's not what happens. Right. That's not what he experiences. Um, And uh, so maybe let's just dive right in then. So we have Raskolnikov. He's embraced this uh, idea, idea that God is dead um, and and is and is trying to make it in life. Uh, As you said, a poor uh, student. And uh, how how do how do we how do we see the resurrection? in, in this?
0: Sure. It's a great question because one of the things that is so intriguing and relevant, I think about Dostoevsky is the moral nuance that's in there. He doesn't create just sort of cookie cutter characters who are very simple. They really feel like real human beings. And so the resurrection of Raskolnikov, first of all, It takes place throughout the novel through little actions, I would say. There are moments of great generosity on Raskolnikov's part. So, yes, he's a double murderer, but he's also capable of doing good things. And he does good things throughout the novel to help others, to take care of others. What's interesting, though, is each time he does that throughout the novel until the very end, he recriminates himself for doing it. So let's say he gives alms to somebody, and then he says, Why did I do that? I shouldn't have done that. You know, I am the superior man, right. or I don't have much money myself. Why would I help other people? So it's very interesting. They're like these halting steps towards resurrection and then he falls back. I would say one of the pivotal moments is when he goes to visit Sonia. So he's already murdered two people. He's met Sonia, who, as I mentioned, is this very young girl who was forced by her family, actually, to prostitute herself. To, to support, help support yeah, her family, to support right? the family, exactly. yeah. So he meets her, and in a sense, she is something like the moral compass, like, like you might say an exemplification or a personification of his conscience that he's trying to kill. Even the name is interesting, Sonia, Sophia, Sophia, Eternal Wisdom, yeah. it's a fascinating name. But he goes to her, and he wants to confess to somebody. He wants to tell somebody what he's done. And he has a sense maybe it's safe with her. The first time he goes to her, he actually doesn't confess fully, but he gives enough of a hint that she realizes something really serious has happened here with this guy. Uh, But he asks her to read from the Bible and she reads the raising of Lazarus from the gospel of John chapter 11. And there's a beautiful moment where Dostoevsky talks about this, how she finishes reading and the two of them, the murderer and the prostitute are standing there in the light of this flickering candle. And so for me, that's kind of the first foreshadowing of a real resurrection for him that will take place in the novel.
1: Right. Which I think that's actually really interesting because, you know, one, one symbol, I think that we talk about that you can talk about from um, this book is actually just Rus- Raskolnikov's room itself, which is super tiny, claustrophobic. There's no air, very tiny little light. Um, so stuffy, he tends to lock himself up in the room and it's, it's up in a, in a, in a a bit tall building in the top floor of a tall building where then he, you know, it's also, he looks down on the city down on the people. And that kind of symbolizes that, uh, you know, greatness that he's striving to have more than other people. Right. And any, any time I think then that little light that comes in, like you said, the candle with the light. I think is a interesting uh like you said foreshadowing of that resurrection which light he doesn't have a lot of light in his room where he spends so much time and gets stuck just in his ruminations and and struggles of guilt and and all of that and so when you know having the the combination of the reading of Lazarus so scripture and a moment where where someone that was dead comes to life and then the flickering candle of light and two broken people I think that's an just an amazing image of the journey that that he's taking towards possible redemption, right? Yeah, and I want to key on
0: that, what you just said about two broken people, because he does ultimately go back a few days later. And this is amazing, actually. So the novel itself is what? It's 550 pages, something like that. So <laughs> this much of the novel until the epilogue, this is only two weeks. This all takes oh, place oh, in wow. two weeks.
1: Yeah. Amazing.
0: So, so much happening yeah. in a very short amount of time. Uh, but he goes back to Sonia and he does tell her right, that he's done it, that he killed these two people. And one of the interesting things that came up in class was why, why did he tell her? What was it about Sonia in particular that gave him the security to tell her right. this? And what we came up with in class was really, it's the fact that she also is a sinner. Remember, she's a prostitute. right? And so she is considered a dreg of society right. in St. Petersburg in the 1860s. So there's something fascinating about that, how we want to share our brokenness, but we also want to know that it's going to be received in a non-condemnatory way. Right Now, she does challenge him to grow. We'll talk about that a little bit later. It's a both and. It's not either or. Right. It's not just, well, just welcome and don't, don't call to conversion but he knows that she's not going to condemn me, that she's going to understand because she mm-hmm. herself is a sinner, which I think is so important for all of us, right? Just to to know that, especially those who are called, you know, to ministry in the church, but really for every Christian.
1: Yeah, sure. I, absolutely. I think there's a really strong fear of judgment, right? Mm-hmm. That exists in, yeah. in society today and in and, and a lot of different ways. And, um, and that there's always that, that kind of question will, what I share, be respected, you know? And so, so what happens then when he, he, he finally confesses and, and from there, then what, uh,
0: so he confesses to her and this is so interesting. We talked about this a lot in class as well. So basically his biggest concern when he confesses is, are you going to leave me? Now this is interesting because they don't have any kind of relationship, right? right? Like they've only met a couple of times and he helped her family, which is a whole nother story, which is fascinating story of her family, but he helped them financially, but they don't have any kind of relationship with each other, but he just wanted somebody. So he goes to her and when he confesses, basically what he's saying is like, are you gonna leave me? Are you gonna abandon me because of this? And she tells him, no. And she says, but you have to confess. You have to bow down and kiss the earth and say, I have killed, and you have to turn yourself in. And this begins his struggle in him because he's well, why should I do that? I freely chose to do this action. I go beyond the boundaries of good and evil. Why should I have to do this? So they go back and forth with this, and he ultimately leaves her. And then there's some more soul searching that takes place on his part. Ultimately he does go to confess, but even that scene is so interesting because he goes and he actually does bow down and kiss the ground. Then he goes to the police station, goes up the stairs, can't bring himself to admit that he did this. Cause even as he's going up the stairs, he's saying, what if there's still some way out of this? What if sure. I can still escape sure, from this? So he goes up there, doesn't confess comes downstairs, comes outside, and he sees Sonia standing there. Like she followed him to the police station. And that's when he turns around, goes back upstairs and says, it was I. I murdered the pawnbroker and I murdered Lizaveta, her sister.
1: Because she was in the room. Because she right? was in she the saw at the same time, yeah.
0: right? Yeah, and so that's that's kind of the the end of the main part of the story. And then he's transported to Siberia. Raskolnikov sent there for punishment to go to prison there and Sonia goes with him. So she doesn't leave him. She goes with him. And obviously, you know, she doesn't see him very often, but she's outside the prison. She's able to visit with him every once in a while. And then literally the last two pages of the story is when his own conversion, you could say takes place. When he finally realizes I've sinned, I've hurt a lot of people. And yet God is offering me this chance of redemption through suffering, through accepting my own suffering, through giving it meaning, and through the love that Sonia has for me and that I can also have for her. And actually, the, Sonia's love for him and his ultimately for her is so interesting because it always reminds me of you know Thomas Aquinas' favorite definition of love, to will the good of the other as other. So to really will to choose the good of the other person for the sake of the other person, not for right. my own sake, for the sake any of any type the of person. selfish. Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, yeah. Retribution. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's awesome. That's an amazing story. So we can say. I mean, at the end, in a certain sense, although there's a lot of subplots and tragedies and things that happen in there, but can we say there that it, it, it is a happy ending? I mean, at the end of at the end of the novel. I'd say it's a hopeful ending. Nice.
0: So the way it ends is fascinating. But here begins a new account, the account of a man's gradual renewal, the account of his gradual regeneration, his gradual transition from one world to another. It might make the subject of a new story, but our present story is ended.
1: (laughs) That's amazing, what a great end. We talked about that
0: yesterday in class, and I asked the, the brothers here, why do you think he ended like that? And a number of them said, it feels like now the rest of the story is our story. Now he's inviting wow, yeah. us, okay, now you go live your life, live a redeemed life, a risen life. Wow, that's, yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of open-ended.
1: And I think that, I mean, that's the experience of faith, I think, that we've all had, right? The, the experience of a journey, and not just faith, any type of growth or, or things that we're all working on, um, whether it's that that little defect or that little limitation that we have or things that we just want to grow in and get better at. You know, we, we, we want it to happen with the snap, of a finger right and that's that's what society has given us with with just the clicks and the touches and everything we're able to get things immediately and that in life that that doesn't happen right and I think Dostoevsky probably I mean like you like you were saying at the beginning that might even be kind of the result and the acceptance of his own journey and his own struggle of that uh God is dead. Society and him trying to grasp and understand his faith and and saying it's this gradual growth, right? Um, what what could be some of the things maybe that we take away from this? Like you know, I think it's a great kind of segue into possibly some things for us today from this story that can help uh, can help each of us.
0: I think one is the constant presence of God's providence. Because as I mentioned, the story is complicated. It's nuanced. Every character is complicated. There's a right. lot of light and a right. lot of shadows in each character. Kind of reminds me of another book we'll talk about, Brideshead Revisited. Yeah. Right? right, right. This reality of God's providence, his grace always acting, always pursuing us, always working. I think that is one, just the the faith and the trust in that that God wants us to have. I think another that you actually just touched on is the gradual nature, because one of the reasons for Raskolnikov's crime in a sense is he wants greatness. Now he wants something now. Mm -hmm. So I want money now to be able to do something great for society. I want to feel that I am a great man who is beyond the boundaries of good and evil right now. Obviously God never wants us to feel that we're beyond the boundaries of good and evil. Right. But he does want us obviously to to do certain things for him right to fulfill a mission in life but at the same time the danger is i want it now almost like like holiness right yeah. i want to be a saint on my terms as i right. understand holiness and i want it right today now. right now <laughs> today yeah, exactly instantaneously <laughs> and the whole story is gradual and even at the end even the redemption or resurrection at the end as dostoevsky says this is gradual now begins kind of a new chapter yeah. in this story, right? But it hasn't happened yet. It's it's happening, but it isn't fulfilled yet. So I think that's also very helpful to remember that. And then the, the both and dimension, especially of Sonia that I touched on earlier, how she's very welcoming, compassionate, loving, kind. At the same time, she holds Raskolnikov to a high moral standard. She calls him to conversion. Yeah. But it's both together. The reason that he has, I think, the confidence to begin a process of conversion, we could say, to confess, to accept suffering for the evil that he's done is because he knows that she loves him and she's there with him. And even the name there is interesting, right? Sonia, Sophia, as we were talking about. Sophia, Divine Wisdom. Obviously, she's a real character in the story, but it seems to me she also, in a sense, is a representative of of God in that sense of that, that divine wisdom, how God is always with us. God will never abandon us no matter what happens. But God also calls us to conversion. He calls us to, to holiness. He calls us to grow. There's this line from St. Edith Stein that I was thinking about actually, as we were talking about this in class. She says, never accept anything as truth if it lacks love, which I think is a great, it's a great idea really truth is not some abstract concept that we hit people over the head with or hit right. ourselves over the head with. So never accept anything as truth if it lacks love never accept anything as love if it lacks truth. truth. So it's yeah it's together so both and, both right? and yeah. yeah and so I think Sonia is a a great exemplar of that. Uh, and then the last thing that comes to mind would be the importance of accepting suffering out of love. John Paul II has that idea where he says um, suffering has this potential to unleash new love into the world if we accept it out of love. And that's what Raskolnikov finally does at the very end of the story. He's able to accept his suffering. And you could even say he's kind of responsible for a lot of it, right? Sure. But still, even the fact that he accepts it, even though he's responsible for it, it gives it a new meaning. And it becomes redemptive. So there's a beautiful line at the end of the book where he he thinks about this how how his acceptance of suffering in a sense can help redeem all the hurt that he caused to Sonia throughout the story as well. Uh, so I think there's a deep insight on Dostoevsky's part there.
1: That's awesome. Um, I think I think that those those topics or themes kind of directly relate to our life, you know, especially especially one of of the both and and faith and suffering that our faith is, it's not just a belief and a hope, but there's also a a suffering that that is gone, that goes along with that in our lives that is redemptive because of Christ's suffering, um, passion, death and resurrection, which is resurrection, which is exactly, you know, what we're living during this time of, of the Easter season um, that we lived intensely during Holy Week, but now that that carries over into uh, these these weeks after Easter, and and that you so excellently explained through uh, the lens of Crime and Punishment, this great novel of Dostoevsky. Um, I don't know if you have any parting uh, parting reflection, parting Just wisdom. Read Crime and Punishment. <laughs> read Crime and Punishment exactly. Um, again, Jordan Peterson, one of his favorite novels of all time. He said. Um, and I know the brothers that have been in your seminar have enjoyed it very much. So thank you very much for your time, Father John. Your reflection, especially uh, this this Easter reflection, that we can hopefully think about and maybe even apply a little bit to our own lives, that so that we can we can be on this gradual journey, this new chapter that Dostoevsky you know writes in the last page, that we can all write our own. Story of a hopeful conversion to our Lord. So thank you. Thank you for your time. Oh, thank you.
0: You have been listening to The Catholic Perspective, a resource from rcspirituality.org. Please visit our website and check out more great resources to help you pray, learn, grow, and go. Please join our team of digital missionaries by subscribing at rcspirituality.org.